your family lives, and uh, so beautifully done. Uh, Charles Wesley, a great Methodist, the songwriter, John, John Wesley, of course, the preacher, and Charles Wesley, the songwriter, that carol's around 300 years old, and uh, it's amazing, uh, as I listen to carols again this year, it is amazing the Christian theology in carols. It is really something. I mean, uh, some of the carols, another Wesley, one hark the herald angels sing, listen to that and you think, man, the whole gospel is written in this carol. It's amazing, quite amazing. Thank you to those who have uh, so beautifully decorated the sanctuary and we noticed the uh, lovely, lovely uh, arrangements coming in the, in the door. Uh, I know those things just don't happen. I pastored long enough to know that someone uh, thought about that needing to be done and put the work into getting it done. So thank you, whoever uh, you are. Also want to say thanks on behalf of Pastor Glenn and, and I to the Auburn people and to the elders for this opportunity of being with you this fall. We really enjoyed it. And uh, I'm ending uh, this morning with Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 24. And I think you'll find some links to Advent, even though it's not a traditional Advent 1 uh, message. And uh, like you, Brent, uh, in, in uh, old school free Methodism, anything liturgical was kind of, you know, back off. It's not, it's not spiritual. Well, it turns out it is spiritual to have four Sundays and <laughs> to get ready for Christmas Day. And, and that whole four weeks emphasis of, light and and all the things that are part. I think you'll see the light theme in this passage this morning. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Guide us, O thou great Jehovah. We are pilgrims in this barren land. Feed us, bread of heaven, until we want no more. For we are weak, but you are mighty. Hold us with thy powerful hand. This we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I want to say thank you uh, to Diane and to Alec as well for the uh, great work of uh, putting together the outlines for Glenn and I. And I think you've got uh, the thesis in front of you and uh, Alec will follow along with the outline as uh, we move. And again, Josh, who has been sending out them by email as well. There is a school of thought in the Christian community during the days in which we live that says this, every believer has the right to discover for him or herself 
how they should live as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. I agree with that sentiment to a point. I understand the priesthood of all believers concept which emerged in the Lutheran Reformation of the 1500s. I also know what can happen when legalism with its lists of do's and don'ts dominates the body of Christ. However, the idea of everyone figuring out for him or herself what actually they should be doing, living like, as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, crumbles, crumbles, when we consider that it is Jesus Himself who lays out a common denominator of how His disciples live, of what it means to name His name. So you've got this legalism and license thing going on in the Christian community. Legalism, this is how you live, license, no rules whatsoever, no, no pattern whatsoever. And into the middle of that comes the Sermon on the Mount, which is really nothing more than a descriptor of how the followers of Jesus should live. One of the most important places to find, though, to find that common denominator of how we as believers should live, ought to live, use the moral word, ought to live, is the Sermon on the Mount. Dr. John R.W. Stott suggests that in the first half of Matthew chapter 6, Jesus describes the Christian's private life, giving, praying, fasting. But now Jesus shifts his attention to the public aspect of our faith. And he suggests that followers of Jesus do live in certain ways. Yes, Jesus will speak to money, possessions, food, drink, clothing, and ambition in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Now that's getting pretty close to saying this is how a believer should live. Given Reformation, priesthood of every believer, it's got to be balanced because Christians have to live differently. The inner life and the outer life are linked. And the breakdown, the collapse of Christian witness comes when what we say we are on the inside and what we do on the outside do not mesh. So Jesus tackles possessions and money right off the bat. Now when I first looked at this passage of Scripture, I actually thought that there was, they were misplaced, that these three different paragraphs, three different pericopes, didn't really fit together. But as I have looked at them, I think, in fact, they do fit together for very specific reasons. But I'd like to change the order a bit. If I was the one that had put together this section of the Matthew's Gospel, uh, I would have put, just made a, a slight tweak of the sequence, and I'll show you why. Because I want to come back to the whole issue of light on this first Sunday of Advent.
So there's three contrasts here in these six verses of Matthew 6, verses 19 to 25. Contrast number one is treasures on earth versus treasures in heaven. Now I want to jump down to contrast number three. Contrast number three is two masters. Number one is money and number two is God. Now back up to contrast number two in the middle. Contrast number two is light versus darkness. And it gets at the issue of the eye. I believe that the fulcrum on which the other two rests, the other two contrasts rest, is the eye. And that's why I've got it at the end. I'm going to deal with it at the end, even though it comes in the middle. It's, the middle, it's in the middle of the other two for a reason, because it's the fulcrum. You know what fulcrum is? The support on which a lever rests or turns. It's the teeter-totter. So the eye is the fulcrum. And master and money are on either side of the teeter-totter. Treasures, eye, master. All right, let's look at these three contrasts that Jesus develops. Number one, treasures on earth versus treasures in heaven, verses 19 to 21 of Matthew chapter 6. Treasures on earth are a bad investment. Now that's a generalization, isn't it? But that's what Jesus is teaching here. Because he says they are subject to decay. Moth and rust destroy. The clothes get eaten and the car rusts away. Now I love to see some of the classic cars on the roads of Peterborough County and Ontario. And some of them have, are in incredible shape, but most of them have had somebody rip them right down to the steel and start over again to make them look as good as they do because cars rust away. In fact, everything that, has, that is made has a built-in obsolescence factor. Nothing is designed, especially in this consumerism culture, to last forever because it's not possible. Uh, some of you, like us, have, uh, we're now living in our house for 30, same house for 31 years. And about five years ago, uh, Karen said, this kitchen has to be renovated. It just is dated and it just, and it wasn't, it was a, a builder's entry level subdivision kitchen, so it was, it was poor from the beginning. We just, we did whatever we could do to get into the house, basically. So the kitchen was replaced, and it was, you know, lovely and all this. Well, I said to her, you know what? In 20 years, someone's going to come into this house and say, oh, this kitchen is terribly dated. Rip it out. That's just the way life is the treasures on earth are a bad investment because they're subject to decay. Treasures on earth are also subject to thieves. One of the things that I find fascinating about human history, and we're seeing it right now as well, is that cultures who have everything 
are the cultures that are targeted by those cultures that don't have anything. And the whole idea of I've got to get what someone else has got is part of original sin and it is part of human history. And if you want to watch the wars of the worlds unfold and continue to unfold, that's what you'll see. And we're seeing that right now. We call them the developing countries. What are they trying to get? They're trying to get wealth. And over a course of time, they probably will. Jesus says, all of that stuff is just temporary. And thieves, worst case scenario, break in and steal. You have what someone else wants. That's the whole idea behind alarm systems. So treasures on earth, subject to decay, subject to thieves. Treasures in heaven, by contrast, are a good investment. Why? Because they are not subject to decay or opportunistic thieves. They are eternal and they are incorruptible, like good old King James word. Incorruptible. And then Jesus says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, I want to just say one word here about this whole thing, money, treasures. In case someone is saying, Jesus therefore is saying that treasures on earth are evil. No, he did not say that. He said, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And again, the Timothy passage, it is not money, but the love of money that is the evil component of, love, of, of money. So, I know what earthly treasures are. What are heavenly treasures? Well, my own soul. Three questions with regard to my own soul. Am I taking good care of it? How's soul care going during a pandemic? Tough time. Tough time. Second wave, worse than the first. And if you again think human behavior is any different, read about the Spanish pandemic in 1918 to 1920. The second wave was worse than the first. Why? Because World War I ended in November 1918. All the soldiers came home from Europe and they had a great old party. And they spread, the Spanish flu all over North America from Europe. And millions died. I mean, <laughs> it's just amazing how much history repeats itself. Am I ready to die? The only thing that I will take with me on the next journey of life is my soul. Everything else stays behind. I uh, went back to Renfrew in 1981 as the pastor of the Parkview Free Methodist Church. My dad had pastored that same church from 1962 to 1970. So I was 15 when I left and 26 when I went back. But lots of my friends were still there from high school. And uh, one of my paper customers over on uh, Dominion Street died. I knew, his, I knew his daughter real well when I take the funeral. 
yes, I would. Uh, I, knew, I knew Jock from all those years, and so, yes, I would take the funeral. Well, she, Bonnie says to me, it's said that you can't take anything to the grave with you. But she said, my father always had a screwdriver in one pocket and a dollar bill in the other pocket, and that's how he's going to the grave. And sure enough, she made sure that he had those two items. Uh, with Well, that's the only story that I know of of being able to take something with you. Uh, well, and again, it went to the grave. It didn't go beyond the grave. So, heavenly treasures, my own soul, my family. Every person ever born on this earth lasts forever. How important is the spiritual well-being of my family to me? Do I understand their need for the salvation offered by Jesus on the cross? To what extent does my lifestyle reflect the core values of heavenly treasure in my relationships with my family? And then... Heavenly treasure number three, other people. You'll notice that the heavenly treasure is all persons. <laughs> That's all it is. Whether it's my own soul, my family, or other people, nothing else matters except people and how I invest my life in them for the sake of the gospel. Contrast number two. Well, it's actually contrast number three because I remember I'm putting that one uh, at the, in the middle, third in my sequence. God versus money, 24 to 25 of Matthew chapter 6. No one can serve two masters. You will hate one and love the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. And then Jesus just says it right out. You cannot serve both God and money, which gets again back to the love of money issue. The best example that is in all the New Testament with regard to this issue of, of lordship and master is the story of the rich young ruler, which I had Brent read this morning. I love this passage of Scripture. I love, and I won't go through all of it, I just want to point out one significant thing. When he asks Jesus what he has to do to inherit eternal life, Jesus gives back commandments 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 5. That's really what he answers back to Jesus, which has always intrigued me. Why doesn't he mention commandments 1, 2, 3, 4? Well, here's the reason. Commandments 5 through 10 have to do with our relationship with others. Commandments 1 to 4 have to do with our relationship with God. And Jesus knew that he could put his finger on the relationship with God issue by saying, give up your money. In fact, the young man said, all these things that you've listed, I have done since I was a child. Jesus says, one thing you lack, because he knew that his wallet was the most important thing in his life. And guess what? The rich young ruler walked. He got it. And what I find intriguing as well about this passage is Jesus did not chase him down. 
he let him go. Because he knew that until there was heart change with regard to his attitude, his love for his own money, there was no possible way that he would ever follow Jesus. And you can't serve one or the other. You, you, you can't serve both. You have to serve one or the other. The rich young man's God was his money. Jesus put his finger on this issue in the man's life because he knew where his heart was. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Contrast number three. Well, no, contrast number two. It's in the sequence, the second one, but here I want to take you back to this fulcrum idea. It's light versus darkness. Verses 22, 23. I think contrast number two, the fulcrum question, really gets down to, are we seeing correctly? How's your vision? I'm aging. I, there's things about me that are different than they were when I was married 40 years ago. One of them's eyesight. I'm struggling. I look down. I look up. I take them off. I put my face in the page. All those things. And I've wondered, as I have reflected on the aging process, and as I've had friends go through difficult, difficult physical changes in their lives, I've wondered for myself what would be worse, to lose one's sight or to lose one's hearing. Have you ever asked that question? For me, there is no possible, there's only one answer. I, I don't know what would happen if I went blind. To live in perpetual darkness? I don't know how the people who live in the Arctic handle 24 hours of darkness for such a vast number of months, the winter months of the year. I, I, what would it be like? And yet Jesus says that's, that, that that's exactly how to describe those who do not know him. They're in darkness. And that, and that light comes from him, that he is the source. The light of the world is Jesus. The light has entered into this world, moved into the neighborhood, as, as uh, Eugene Peterson says in John chapter 1, and the darkness has never extinguished it <laughs> and never will. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. Yeah, exactly. Beautiful sunny day. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? The eye is the filter who, through which we strain out the world and are left with the values of the kingdom of God. It's the way we make decisions about what heavenly treasure is versus earthly treasure and whether we are serving God or money. It's the fulcrum in which we balance these things. So heavenly treasure serving God is light. Earthly treasure serving money is darkness. That, that's really the best way to find out 
what you're working for is to ask the question, where's your heart? What's your passion? What do you spend the majority of your time doing? Answer those questions and you'll find out where your treasure is too. Christians must live differently than the world. I'm not arguing for a list of drills of do's and don'ts. I will never, ever suggest that. But boy, oh boy, if our lives aren't different than the world's, what's the difference? And this is one of those spots where it's got to be different. It's the Jesus model. He modeled it. (laughs) It's not like he told us one thing and did another. He lived it out. And he calls us to do that too. Okay, four quick suggestions. There's the concept. I want to boil it down and give you something to say, this is how I can make a decision about what it looks like to live this out. Number one, make a commitment to living as simply as you can. Do I need this? I went to seminary with Fred Adams, who um, ended up in the Philippines, in Davao, in the Philippines, for all of his uh, ministry as a missionary, as an uh, urban uh, renewal a catalyst. Amazing, amazing story. But Fred, from the very beginning, was a man who just didn't need anything. And, and here we are in a prayer meeting at Asbury Seminary, and all of a sudden this man, who doesn't need anything anyway, says, Lord, uh, a never, prayer I never forgot, uh, you've promised to meet my needs, not my greeds. Now that's 40 some odd years ago and it's still part of what I believe to be true. Living simply is a Christian concept. Do I need this? Number two, resist the temptation to compare yourself to others. I think it's one of the worst diseases in the Christian community. I call it compare and contrast Christianity. It's a it's, it'll, it'll just destroy your spirit. It'll eat the life, the spiritual life right out of you. Uh, I think I've told you before uh, some of the stories from my childhood. I didn't know at the time, but um, we were raised in poverty, had a great childhood, have wonderful, wonderful memories of my childhood, but uh, looking back now, we were uh, definitely uh, a poor family. Poor in terms of things, but not in terms of love. Um, My brother Paul was a big man. Two years younger, but much bigger, much earlier. I was was very, very tall, but not uh, young, but not very big. And he was tall and big. And boy, could he eat. And often when food was being distributed... It seemed to me that Paul was getting more than I was. And my dad had a line. And it's a line that I've used lots of times myself. And that goes like this. Lloyd, keep your eyes on your own plate. 
I think that's a really important way for us to understand the Christian life. Keep your eyes on your own plate. Don't do the compare and contrast thing. It'll kill you. Resist the temptation to compare yourself to others. Number three, help your family before the will is read. A warm hand gift is much more significant than a cold hand gift. Now, be wise with the gift. Because there's another saying that there's no sense of chasing good money after bad. But I feel very strongly about this. I have seen, again, from a pastoral perspective, uh, very, very, very unwise things take place with money and families. And if there's a way for you in a wise, discerning fashion to help your children and your grandchildren before the will is read, do it. That's when they need your help. Help your family before the will is read. Now, is that my idea? No. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's not my word. Those are Paul's words. And that word unbeliever there is the word infidel. It's the strongest form of the word unbeliever in the New Testament. So, Make a commitment to living as simply as you can. Resist the temptation to compare yourself to others. Help your family before the will is read. Number four, trust God to meet the needs of your life. Matthew 6, 33, But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Philippians 4, 19, And my God will meet all your needs, not your greeds, according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Some of you will remember the Christian songwriter, Scott Wesley Brown. He was actually in Peterborough for a concert. I think I looked, thought about it last night, I think about 30 years ago. He has written a poem. I don't think it's set to music. It's just one of his poems. Uh, the musicians amongst us may know that. Uh, but here it is, Scott Wesley Brown. Things upon the mantle, things on every shelf, things that others gave me, things I gave myself. Things I've stored in boxes that don't mean much anymore, old magazines and memories behind the attic door. Things on hooks and hangers, things on ropes and rings, things I guard that blind me to the pettiness of things. Am I like the rich young ruler, ruled by all I own? If Jesus came and asked me, could I leave them all alone? O Lord, I look to heaven beyond the veil of time to gain eternal insight that nothing's really mine. And to only ask for daily bread and all contentment brings to find freedom as your servant in the midst of all these things. For discarded in the junkyards, rusting in the rain, lie things that took the finest years of lifetimes to obtain. And whistling through these tombstones, 
the hollow breezes sing a song of dreams surrendered to the tyranny of things. Jesus, you are the light of the world, and it is through our eyes that we discern your light and we understand what is darkness. In this season of Advent, may our eyes be opened fully, and may you, the light of our world, be the light of our lives too. In Jesus' name, amen.